Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And Father, we are grateful that we live in a country where we have Bibles that we can read in our own language. We thank you, Father, that for so many of us, we have had the opportunity to learn to read from very young ages and to be able to comprehend And we're thankful that this morning we have another opportunity to exercise that ability that not everyone has, to have a Bible in their own language and to understand what is being read and the words that are on the page before us. Father, we pray as we exercise that opportunity right now that you would help us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in the word of God And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. In his book, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt actually tells a story of the day that he discovered that he was a chronic liar. He was at home writing a review of an article on moral psychology when his wife, Jane, walked by his desk. In passing, Jane asked him not to leave the dirty dishes on the counter where she prepared their baby's food. Her request was polite, but its tone added a postscript, as I've asked you to do a million times. Good husband that height is, he recounts how his mouth started moving even before her stopped. Words just started to pour out. Words that linked themselves together to say something. To say something about the baby having woken up at the exact same time that their elderly dog was barking to ask for a walk and that he was sorry. He was just looking for a place to put his breakfast dishes down wherever he could because in his family, caring for a hungry baby and an incontinent dog was a surefire excuse. It worked. He was acquitted. Jane left the room so that he could continue working on a thesis that argued, intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. But as he wrote about people automatically fabricating justifications out of their gut feelings, he realized that he had just done the exact same thing with his wife. He severely disliked being criticized, and he had felt a flash of negativity come toward him from her when she had just said, can you not? So even before he knew why she was criticizing him, he knew that he disagreed with her, And his inner lawyer went to work to come up with an excuse. It was true that he had eaten breakfast. And it was true that he had given Max his first bottle of the day. And it was true that Andy needed to be let out for a walk. But all of those events had happened at separate times. Only when criticized did he merge them all together to form a composite image of a harried father who was trying to do good for their animal and had nowhere to lay his dirty dishes. And he did it so quickly and convincingly, that both he and his wife believed it. Height finally understood something intuitively and with an open heart, exactly what James has been teaching us throughout this letter, that it is easy to affirm our belief in something. It is much more difficult to actually put that into practice, which is why the churches James has been writing to as we've been studying this epistle Profess to love God, but show favoritism to the high and mighty, to the exclusion of the meek and lowly, even though they probably thought themselves to be warm and welcoming congregations. Their hypocrisy, James says, made something plain, that they were merely Christians in profession, but not in practice. They were hearers of the word, but not doers. 
So James moves throughout the letter and he highlights how there's this loose speech among these same people. They profess to love God and they bless God, but they curse other people made in the likeness of God's image because they couldn't see the contradiction of saying, I'm justified by faith by itself. And now, once again, he draws our attention to practical application as he highlights for us the arrogant boasting of people who profess a high view in God's sovereignty. God rules. God reigns. God is sovereign and in control. But they're functional atheists with respect to the future because it is really difficult to trust the living God for today and tomorrow. And as he does, James teaches us, Humble yourselves before God with respect to the future. Relation to the law, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord in relation to the future, verses 13 through 17. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord in relation to your riches, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord in the midst of your suffering." chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. And humble yourselves before the Lord in relation to your oaths and your promises. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Everything from chapter 4, verse 11, all the way into chapter 5 is an implication flowing out of verse 10 of chapter 4. And James has taught us that not only are we to follow this, to humble ourselves before the Lord, but God actually gives grace to humble people. Friends, from the very beginning of the Christian life to the end of the Christian life, James is highlighting for us that there is a requirement of humility. It is humbling. Indeed, it is humiliating to repent. It is humbling and humiliating to turn away from the way that we were living because we finally acknowledge that we are sinners, sinners by birth and sinners by choice. It is humbling and humiliating to affirm that our sin is a problem. It's a problem in our life, and it has caused a problem. It has actually separated us from God. It is humbling and humiliating to admit that we deserve consequences because of our sin, that we deserve eternal death, that we deserve conscious damnation because of our sin. It is humbling and it is humiliating to confess that our only hope is the grace of God that God gives to people who humble themselves in repentance and chapter 2, verse 1, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Friend, if you're here today and you are not a Christian and you've never humbled yourself by repenting of your sin and placing your faith in the substitutionary death and the justifying resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are actually here to call you to do that today. Not simply in the sermon. We designed the entirety of our service to call you to repent of your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. The entirety of the service, from every song to every reading to everything that we say out loud together, is to call us to turn to God in faith and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And friend, if you humble yourselves before the Lord, James tells us that he will exalt you because of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And friend, the astonishing thing about the message that we're preaching to you and this call where we're inviting you to believe in him is that you can do that right now by turning away from your sins and asking the Father to forgive you of your sins by faith in Jesus Christ. 
or you can find one of the pastors after the service today. I'll be standing at those doors. Other pastors will be at different doors. And you can find one of those pastors and say, what do I need to do to trust in Jesus Christ by faith? Friends, we would love to open the Bible with you and to tell you about salvation. We'd love to open the Bible with you, and we'd love to tell you the good news that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you too can be born again. But fellow believers, James is not simply writing for unbelievers, which is one of the things that we've seen as we've studied the book of James. James, as we noted last week, does not want us to come in here and listen to the sermon for somebody else. James is writing to us, and James is writing to believers. And he tells fellow Christians that humility is required throughout the entirety of their Christian life because it is a humbling and humiliating thing to admit that we have been judging our neighbors and that we are no one special and we should not be judging anybody else. James is not saying that we should not acknowledge things to be wrong that are wrong and that we should not tell people that wrong things are wrong. But there is quite the difference when, like Pastor Renee highlighted for us earlier, when we find ourselves in a position thinking, thank God I'm not like that person. It is a humbling and humiliating thing to recognize that much of our planning, as James is teaching us, is presumption when we have no idea what tomorrow will bring. It is a humbling and humiliating thing to acknowledge that we have used our wealth, no matter how much we might have across the congregation in here, to live in as much luxury as we possibly and personally can to satiate, as James is teaching us, our own selfish desires and appetites. It is a humbling and a humiliating thing to trust the Lord in our suffering, especially sometimes when our suffering feels like a death. James knows that from the beginning of the Christian life to the end of the Christian life, a humility is required to trust God So everything from chapter 4, verse 11, all the way into chapter 5 is an implication flowing out of that exhortation in chapter 4, verse 10. And to drive the point home, James now introduces an imaginary dialogue partner. He does that to help us see an erroneous view that he wants to correct in all of us this morning. Look with me in verse 13. You who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. James is not actually quoting a real person. He's stating a representative error that he sees in so many hearts. The same person who says, I've humbled myself before the Lord, lives without reference to God in relation to the future. Like a functional atheist, they say things when they will go, today or tomorrow. Where they will go, into such and such a town, and I'll do this or that. How long they'll go, I'll do that for a year. What they'll do while they're there, and I'm going to trade. And what they'll gain from all of their work, I'm going to make a profit. As if their desire and their ability was all that they needed to factor into the equation of their plans. Plans James puts before us as a sin of speech, verse 13. You who say, because James knows that that's actually where the rubber meets the roads for us in the Christian life. We talk as if we know the future. We speak as if we can control the lives of other people around us. We dialogue with one another as if we can control what is taking place. And James teaches us that this reveals a deep spiritual problem in our life. It's something that we all do all of the time. And it's not a sin of defaming a brother or sister, 
but it's a sin of a godless presumption in our life about the future. We assure ourselves that time is on our side. There's always tomorrow. And time will always be at our disposal. We will have enough of it. We make plans as if our personal ability is the only issue to take into account. Can I do this? Do I want to do this? Do I like doing this? So I will be doing this. But James helps us see that we overlook our own frailty. You are a mist. And we ignore the fact that even the small print of life has the hands of a sovereign God all over it, if the Lord wills. Something 2020 taught us, if it taught us nothing else, when COVID disrupted everything from family and friends to politics and religion to recreation and rest for so long, was that nobody was really prepared for it and nobody was in control. And as one member reminded me this week as I was preparing for this sermon, it sounds crazy even now in 2023 when we say it all out loud what we lived through in 2020. But it was an example of exactly what James is teaching us here. We do not actually know what the future holds. We have to hold everything with an open hand, which is still hard even though we had so much practice. When the apostle exposes the blemish of our presumptuousness, presuming upon the kindness of God, he exposes something about the unrecognized claims of our own hearts. We feel entitled to certain things from God, and we live without reference to him as we live our daily life. We speak as if our lives were our own right, and not that each day was a mercy. As if choice is the only deciding factor as if we had in ourselves all that we need to make things succeed or to accomplish great things, as if getting on and doing were the sole objectives of our life. Fellow Christians in the room, how often do you think of the Lord throughout the day? Not simply recalling what you heard in the sermon on Sunday. Not even remembering what perhaps you read from the Bible earlier in the morning. But how often are you living with reference to the Lord you get in the car, you go down the street, you make your coffee, you go to work, and you do all of the things that you just take for granted and assume it's all going to happen according to plan. James is telling us that as we do this, if we're not careful, we will live without reference to God. But if we are also not careful, we will misread what James is saying here. We will simply think that James is saying that this is all about the way that we look at the future and the profit that we hope to make, and it's about business in general. But that is not what James is doing at all, is it, in verse 14? James is not criticizing the making of profit, profit or capitalism or how we might go about our day and business that we can make. James is criticizing a godless presumption of thinking that your life, your future, your plans, your successes, your failures, and your ability to control those things are all in your hand. The issue for James is that the functional atheist is not their desire to make money. It's not even really their plans. It's the problem of an arrogant godlessness underlying all of the words and under their, all of their plans. They have forgotten that they are simply creatures of dust, like summer grass. The psalmist says it like this in Psalm 103, verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. In fact, for James, 
They do not even know what will happen tomorrow, verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Sounding once again a lot like Jesus, who reminds us that we cannot add a single hour to our life. That all of the planning and all of the worry and all of the anxiety and all of the energy that we pour into controlling our future is actually entirely out of our hands. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? Friends, James is clear. Humble yourselves with respect to the future because you cannot control your future. Notice second, because you cannot control your life. Look again in verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We boast, James tells us, as he's speaking about the way that we live our lives. We boast about our power, our ability, our image of control. And James tells us how we should assess all of that boasting. That boasting, he says, is evil. Evil, even though it is also ordinary. In fact, it is all so natural. But that is exactly the point for James. James tells us that the functional atheists live their lives, verse 14, and fail to realize that their life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The very familiar phrase that almost everybody in the room knows makes us think of smoke from a fire or a morning fog. And the metaphor from James is very clear. Just as a morning fog is visible as we're driving through the mountainside and we can see it out over the lake, it quickly dissipates and we would never know that it was there. So are the lives of all of the humans in this room. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Like a vapor, here today, no one would even know that we had existed. The brevity, the contingency of human life, especially in contrast to God's eternality and aseity, the fact that He in and of Himself is the source of His own self-existence, James says, humbles us. Instead of assuming there's always tomorrow, in light of our own human creatureliness, There is only one proper response for James. Humble, genuine acknowledgement of our own dependence on the Creator in all of our endeavors. Do you want to know one of the reasons that you struggle in your prayer life? It's because you do not realize that you are a creature completely dependent upon God. Humble people pray. You want to become a more humble person? You pray. And you ask God to do what only God can do. James tells us that we assume that there will always be tomorrow. We do not acknowledge our own dependence on the Creator. Instead, he offers an alternative for us. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. James actually suggests a method of expressing humble dependence upon God. And once again, if we're paying close attention to what James says, it comes again in the form of speech. Why does it come in the form of speech? It's a way of catechizing ourselves as to what is really true. Do not presume and say, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to go here, or I'm going to go there. I'm going to meet these people, or I'm going to meet those people. I'm going to be close to this, and I'm going to be far from that. Instead, say, if the Lord wills, 
I will do this or that. James teaches us to catechize ourselves, to re-instruct ourselves, not as a thoughtless formula, like the way that many of us end our prayers in Jesus' name, without ever giving thought to what that actually means, but as a way to teach us about the brevity of our life and the sovereignty of God and our lack of ability to control anything and how God is constantly in control. If the Lord wills, this will happen in my life. But the phrase also contains for James timeless truths that should always be found in the attitudes of all God's people. A humbling of ourselves as we look to the future and an awareness of our own ignorance as we try to govern our own lives. A faith that does not presume upon the Lord as if we're entitled to anything. An understanding that knowledge doesn't actually give us control over anything. Now, I know some of you are the type of people that you Google and Wikipedia everything in your life. As soon as somebody tells you what's going on or you get a prognosis from the doctor, the first thing that you do is walk out of the room, you pull out the smartphone, and then you just download. And you read everything available and you watch every YouTube available. And you think that because I now know, I am in control. But James once again teaches us that you can Wikipedia life to death. And you can watch every YouTube video available. And you are in no more control of the things taking place around you than you were at the beginning. Knowledge does not put us in control. Knowledge humbles us. Because even with knowledge, we recognize we are absolutely dependent upon God in everything. And that's the very thing that we need to learn, but the very thing that we are so slow to acknowledge. Because what do we want? We want control. And we might not say that. In fact, I recognize in this room that there are probably a lot of humble people who would say, I'm not a control freak, and I don't want to be in control. But James knows that deep down, whether you're willing to admit it or not, that that is what we all really want, control. So we live our life, James tells us, as if it's an algebraic equation. If we do all of the right things, then we'll get all of the things that we like, like friends and a career and a spouse. And if we parent all of the right ways, then we'll produce all of the right kinds of kids who grow up and get settled down and follow Jesus. And if we serve in all of the right capacities in the context of the church, we'll finally be happy. We'll be content and successful. And if we study all of the right things and take all of the right classes with the right professors, we'll get into all of the right schools, make all of the right connections, and have all of the right opportunities. But the longer you live, I'm sure you've learned what I've learned, that life is not an algebraic equation, is it? You can do all of the right things, And it doesn't always produce all of what you think to be the right results. James tells us that that type of presumption is evil, verse 16. So after providing a corrective in our theological teaching concerning our own human contingency and our own brevity of life, James actually circles back to a final rebuke in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's not just presumptuous and not helpful. It's not just presumptuous and not wise. It's not just presumptuous and not the best way to live the Christian life. All such boasting is evil. 
the entirety of that framework of the way of living the Christian life, James says, is false and bankrupt and evil, which makes it anti-God. He censures presumptive planners for their evil boasting. I will be able to do and control, have and organize. And he says it's arrogance before Almighty God. This is not James' way of saying planning is bad, spontaneity is good, and all the spontaneous people in the room said amen, right? But it is a way of teaching us that planning your life without reference to God is actually an expression of over-self-confidence and a refusal to humbly accept our place as a creature in contrast to the Creator, as somebody who is not all-powerful, in contrast to a Creator who is infinite and all-powerful and eternal and forever. Planning your life to control your life and the lives of those around you without reference to God, James says, is presumptuous and boastful and evil and atheistic even if you say in Jesus' name at the end of it. Husbands, are you trying to control the people around you as if you can manipulate the situation? Wives, are you trying to make sure that if you do all of the right things, you had the child the right way, you raised the child the right way, you fed the child all of the right things, that that will produce the right kind of child in the end? Singles, Have you presumed that because you have done all of the right things, that God will necessarily give you all of the things that you want? Grandparents, have you assumed that because you raised your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, that it will produce all of the right type of contingencies for now your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? Fellow members of this church, do we come in week in and week out and just assume that because we're putting in all of the right kind of effort, we sing the right kind of songs, we read from the right kind of confessions of faith, we have the right kind of expositional preaching, that we will have all of the right kinds of expressions of faith in our life, and God will bless us the way that we want. James tells us that that type of living is not simply unwise, it's evil. So what is the solution for James? Verse 15. Instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. A phrase that many Christians use to qualify their future plans. In fact, all week I kept thinking of my friend and brother and fellow pastor, Stephen, because if you know Stephen very well, that you almost can't get out of a conversation where you say, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. And he's like, if the Lord wills. And so Stephen, Stephen was in my head indicting me all week on how I don't do this. So... But it's, it's a phrase that we use in our own life to qualify our future plans, if, if the Lord wills. In fact, it's something that Christians do at the end of so many things where they abbreviate it with just two simple letters, D-V, a shorthand of the Latin phrase Deo Valente, which means God willing. A phrase that actually teaches us that whether we realize it or not, all of our plans and all of our endeavors all of our efforts actually exist under the auspice of the sovereignty of God. We can try to do everything that we want 
to craft life to come out the way that it's supposed to. And it all sits under the auspice of God's sovereignty and the greatness of His majesty and plan. So is James saying that the best thing to do, and here's the core of the message, is be like Pastor Stephen and say, Lord willing, at the end of all of our sentences. Though it's great and be like Pastor Stephen, I don't think that James is saying simply into all of your phrases and all of your letters with DV because he knows the pharisaical tendencies of our own hearts, how something like that can just be self-aggrandizing and just a parade of righteousness. And yet he is instructing us this morning to take something into account, if the Lord wills, as a way to guide us to ask several questions in a barometer of our hearts. Let me ask you them now, fellow believer. Where in your life do you need to remember or express your status as a contingent creature before a sovereign creator? Is it in your relationships? Is it in your career? Is it in your education? Is it in your Christianity? Fellow believer, where have you been presumptuous? or boastful in your planning. Because all too often, as James will help us see, it's really only at death that we have this wake-up call, or in the face of death that we have this wake-up call. James is not trying to banish planning from our lives. Rather, he's rebuking this sort of self-sufficient, self-important planning that keeps God for Sunday, but looks for Monday to Saturday to be off-limits in mind. Friends, the very existence of tomorrow is as much of our dependence upon God as our own ability to do anything tomorrow, which is why we should not delay so many things in our life presuming that there will always be tomorrow. If you're here and you're not a member of our church, let me ask you, are you holding off and just thinking, I will join when I finally have it all together? Friends, you will never have it all together. In fact, God commands you to obey today, not tomorrow. What is preventing you? from following him in obedience. For those of you who are single and maybe thinking, you know, I have time in my life now to live it the way that I want, and I'll put things off like marriage and kids in a career when I finally settle down. In what sense do you presume that things like that will be given to you? Perhaps you're here and you're a member of our church and you think, I'll serve when I finally have enough time, I'm really busy. I've never met anybody in America who doesn't think they're busy. Every person I've ever met, even if they're genuinely not busy, thinks that they're busy. Everybody's busy. Why would you hold off obedience for tomorrow? Or perhaps you're here and you're thinking, I will financially contribute to the church when I've saved enough. Friend, you'll always need more. Or I'll start praying when I've built up enough endurance for it. Friends, we always walk with a limp. In fact, praying teaches us that we're dependent. How can you control tomorrow when you don't even know what will happen tomorrow or if there will be tomorrow? The proper response to all of our human limitation, James tells us, is not coercive planning and it's not a passive existence. It is a humility. You are to humble yourselves with respect to the future because you cannot control your future and because you cannot control even your personal life. Notice third for James what you can control. You can control your own obedience in doing the right thing. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
good preacher that he is, James cites a proverb that bears out a variety of different applications for us. Within the immediate context, though, the right thing is clearly to acknowledge how brief and how unpredictable life is from our own limited perspective. Even the psalmist says it, by reason of strength, we have 80 years. And in light of that truth, we are to be a people who live in humility. Verse 14 again, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. One of the interesting things about living in a community like ours and surrounding communities like this is that there are so many historical buildings. But one of the things that you see from time to time is that we determined that one of these historical buildings that once was so important and was actually named after somebody so important is now no longer very important. And we tear it down and we build something else for somebody else who's very important because they gave a lot of very important money. James says, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, that our life is a mist And until we recognize that all of the things that we think that are going to last forever will not, and all of the people that we think that are forever powerful are not, that we are a people who are not rightly living this life, most of us here today, without hesitation, would affirm the sovereignty of God, particularly the members of our church, because you affirm our statement of faith. But James says it's not enough to just affirm the sovereignty of God, that questions remain. In planning and in managing our actual day-to-day lives, are you a functional atheist? If you have your Bible, I want you to flip over to Luke chapter 12 with me. Luke chapter 12, Jesus once again is teaching in parables, and he gives us a very familiar parable to some of us about a rich fool. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Friend, are you taking into your hands the reins and planning and command of your life like the rich fool? Are your prayers simply a formulaic show? You pray because you know Christians ought to but you don't really expect God to give and you're not dependent upon him? Have you already decided with a godless uncertainty what is going to happen in your life? You've mapped it out. And in the lives of your family members and friends, because you've mapped those out too. And because you're particularly gifted of mapping things out, you've mapped it out for everybody else in the context of the church. James teaches us in verse 17 that sins of omission with respect to the future and our lives and the lives of other people around us are just as damnable, evil, and sinful 
as sins of commission, where we clearly reject God's law and slander another brother or sister, or we are greedy people who are hoarding up for ourselves, that all of the ways that we actually don't do the wrong thing but live without reference to God in our lives are just as reprehensible as all of the positive evils that we do. And friends, he teaches us that we're culpable for both, for what we do and what we do not do because we've learned to control life by all of our learning and planning. But James says, if you've actually learned the right thing to do and not do it, it is sin. And just again to remind ourselves, what is the sin that he's referring to? Not being or doing what God has required in his word. For the believer, that is different than the unbeliever. But for the unbeliever, what has God required of you in his word? He has commanded all people everywhere to repent. But for the believer, what has God taught us in James? That we are to be humble. We are to be people who are impartial. We are to be people who profess to love God and actually practice it in our lives. We are to be a people who praise God and use our words to build up other people. That we are to be a people who love God and care for the vulnerable and the outcast. That we are to be a people who live with reference to God for our futures because he alone is in control. And James tells us that in all of those moments that when we've learned those things and have not done them, we're culpable. Members of our church, for everything you've learned in academy and every sermon that you hear from this pulpit, and every Sunday night theology that we've ever had and ever will have, and all of the ways that we've done discipleship and training in the context of our church, that with the opportunity to learn comes the responsibility, according to James, to obey, and we are culpable for all of it. But the message for the unbeliever and the believer, though different, the response for both is the same. Repent. Repent from a godless life or a life without reference to God. Matthew Henry said it like this in his commentary notes on this passage. He said, How apt worldly and projecting men are to leave God out of their schemes. How much of our worldly happiness lies in the promises men make to themselves and to others beforehand. This is what we will do. This is what will happen. How vain a thing it is to look for anything good in the future without concurrence of God's providence. Very quickly, friends, as we apply this passage, I just want to help us to think about how we can guard against presumption in our lives. James says three simple things. Know that you do not know tomorrow. How do you guard against presumption? You know and learn, teach yourself, catechize that you do not know tomorrow. Second, you need to know that you are frail. Your life is the mist. Do not put off obedience of God for tomorrow because tomorrow might never come. Obey today because you don't even know if you make it to tomorrow, if you would have the ability to obey then. Obey now. Unbeliever, repent. Believer, repent. Follow God in what he has commanded and stop putting everything off for the future. And third, to teach ourselves to really believe, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. And that if the Lord wills is actually not only a way to console ourselves about what does or doesn't happen, but to teach us that God's sovereignty is good whether or not we actually believe that or not. When Jonathan Haidt's wife reprimanded him for leaving dirty dishes on the counter, he honestly believed that he was innocent. So he sent his reasoning forth to defend himself, and he came back with a very effective legal brief in just three seconds. 
Well, why did he not just tell the truth? Because as James teaches us, it is easy to affirm our belief in something, but it is actually difficult to put it into practice. So Height learned people are functional atheists because it's hard to trust the living God for today and for tomorrow. So James says, humble yourself with respect to the future because you cannot control your future. You cannot even control your life, but you can control your response and obedience today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would humble us. And Father, we pray that you teach us what James has taught us, that humbling ourselves is not simply thinking of ourselves less, but it is actually learning to think rightly about you and who we are and your infinity and our limitations, infinitude. God, we pray that we would be a humble people, that we would stop trying to seize control from your grasp and that we would humbly submit ourselves to your sovereign rule, reign, providence, and control in our lives. That you would help us to trust, to believe that if the Lord wills it, it will be good for us. And if he does not will it, it will also be good for us. Father, that you would help us to humbly begin the Christian life in repentance. And humbly continue the Christian life in a humility and repentance. Father, we ask that you would help us so that we might be a people who trust you not only for today, but for tomorrow and every day ahead because we do not know what tomorrow will bring and we cannot add a single hour to our span of life. 